Hey everyone, this is Jim Rohner, co-host of the Midrash Podcast and Deacon at Forefront Church in Brooklyn. It was an honor and privilege to have a conversation with Pete Enns, teacher, theologian, co-host of the podcast The Bible for Normal People, and an author of books such as How the Bible Actually Works and The Sin of Certainty. Jonathan Williams and I had a conversation with him about deconstructing certainty and how that can lead to a sense of victimization and shame within the church, and just his fascination with the Old Testament and how really diving into it can actually help enhance and help us appreciate our faith. Uh, We had a really great conversation with him. We really enjoyed it, and we hope you do, too. Pete, you are a theologian, a professor. You've written uh, more books than I think I am even aware of, but most relevant to, you know, some of the audience that's going to listen to this podcast, you are also a podcaster. Um, You are a co-host of The Bible for Normal People, so I kind of want to start there and just um, see if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of specifically the the genesis for the idea when it kind of first came to you or first was introduced to you and when you kind of decided like this is something that 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 I feel like is is valid and that I should do well actually you know we started in march of 2017 and i guess things started brewing like the fall before and i'll tell you i wish i could claim like having any input into starting this because uh a couple people said, you know, Pete, you ought to have a podcast. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I just put it out of my mind, like, why would I ever want to do that? What a dumb idea that is. Who does, who listens to podcasts, right? So, exactly. um, but then, you know, Jared, my co-host, who, uh, you know, who's a student of mine at Westminster, but we've been friends for a while. And he, he called me up one day and he goes, okay, Pete, on a scale of one to five, how much would you hate doing a podcast? <laughs> and I said, well, actually, Jared, because I, I thought about it a little bit more and I said, Honestly, as long as I don't have to think through like equipment mm-hmm. or how to deliver it, I just don't want to deal with any of that kind of stuff. But just talking with people, you know, once a week or something, that's I like doing that. So so that that got us started. And um, we we just thought, you know, the brand, you have to talk about brand. Like, what do you do? And we just we like talking about concepts that are we find very helpful, but that don't always get sort of filtered down. I hate even talking about that. So sort of like. It sounds condescending, but I don't mean it that way. But, um, you know, they don't always get filtered down to people that have actually helped me make sense of things. And uh, we just wanted to have a podcast around that idea and have a lot of scholars on and then just people who are practitioners who also have great ideas and other like influential people and stuff like that. So and it's yeah, it's it's been actually a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we say this a lot. We it's hardly an episode goes by when we don't see something from a different angle from listening to these people talking to us, even though we sort of know what they're going to say already. Um, it, we're always surprised by some angle that they just pick up on that, you know, had I not listened to that, I wouldn't have been aware of it. So I was going to say, even taking a step back from the podcast, um, uh, back further, was, was there a sense amongst your students, amongst friends that there was a need to talk about, um, some of the biblical theological deconstructing uh, that happens through your podcast? Uh, and were you sitting there, you know, thinking, how do I do this? How do I help more people to go through the process of unlearning some of the damaging theology and then going to a place where they can, um, uh, you know, journey with it again? Sure. I mean, that actually, it's, that's an interesting story. At least for me, it's interesting. It might not be for anybody else. But, you know, when I, um, 
when I left Westminster Theological Seminary in 2008, um, a few months later, I was asked to go speak someplace on science and religion, and spe specifically evolution. And I just went and did it, but the feedback that I got from people from doing that was like, oh, you know, maybe I should do this more often. And the feedback was basically really helpful for you to bring these ideas to us we hadn't heard before and in a way that is understandable. And I said, okay, well, that's that's interesting. And that just sort of kept going. And I'd say the podcast is an extension of that because I'd like to think my books, I mean, some people hate my books, <laughs> but nobody says they don't understand them. See, that's just it. At least they understand the books. That's all I care about, that they understand what I'm saying, you know? And if you don't like it, that's your problem, right? So, um, but so, you know, I, I try to communicate clearly and I, I like, I mean, what I like about teaching, all this is a teaching. It's just a, an extension of teaching. That's all this is. Um, what I like about teaching is making complex concepts uh, understandable and approachable and graspable to people so they can sort of take it from there, so to speak, and figure things out. So, yeah, that's that's sort of what I've been doing. And even going, you didn't ask this, but going back even further, this really started back around, um, I'd say around 2001, where uh, a friend of mine, Jim Kinney, who is a big guy at Baker, at Baker Books, and um, you know, a friend of mine for you know over 20 years now, and, and he asked me what I'm working on, and I told him a, a couple of projects, I'm contributing an essay to this thing and an essay to that thing, and he said to me, you know, Pete, it's, it's time for you to stop doing what you think other people are asking you to do, and think about what do you want to say? And that's about the best advice I've gotten about anything anywhere, you know, fr from Jim. Of course, I wrote a book that made me lose a job, but the point is, <laughs> I've, always, I've always held that against him, but not at all, because um, I was being true to my voice. And, and um, so, yeah, it, it really started back then. And I, and I thought to myself, I want to write things that people can understand what I now call normal people, you know, the Bible for normal people. I just, I don't, I want to write things that people can understand because I don't, I don't want to spend my life writing things that, you know, books that cost $250 that wind up in a library and that, you know, 30, 40, 50 people might read in the first 10 years. I just, I, I didn't want to do that. Other people do. And that's fantastic. I just, the energy that I wanted to have in the world that I live in is something that's more, um, I, I I wanted to be helpful to people in in ways that I've been helped, knowing that I'm not the only person out there like that. Absolutely, and I love how people uh, who do write those other books, they're, the way they get people to read it is by assigning it to you uh, for the semester. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and we want to get those people on our podcast. You see, too, because they have a lot to say. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny, but provided they're they can talk to people too. Cause that's not always, you can't assume that from academics, but you know, we've had people on who are just really effective communicators and they're really, they know what they're talking about. So they're, and that's the kind of thing they're fun to have on as long as they can boil it down a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you got asked that question, what is it that you want to talk about? Um, what was it that you wanted to talk about specifically? And it, it, to me, like, I feel like the answer is the Bible. But it was there, you know, is it that? And if so, you know, yeah, talk about why. Okay. Well, um, okay, that goes back even further. I was in graduate school 
all the everything's connected, man. When I think about it, it's just there's a chain <laughs> of stuff that I wasn't even aware of. And but I was having lunch with one of my doctoral professors, John Levinson, who's a, a well-known Jewish uh, biblical scholar slash theologian, who intersects this world of biblical scholarship, Jewish theology, and contemporary practice, which had dawned on me a few years ago. I sort of do that, but from the Christian side of things, you know, the Bible in its original context, but what about Christian theology and what do we do with this stuff? And I remember sitting at lunch with him and I, I, because I, I, this is two years or so into my work. And I said, I just want to understand what the Bible is. And he said, well, I'm glad you're thinking small, you know, <laughs> but, but that's how it turned out. And, and, you know, we talk a lot on our podcast, what is the Bible anyway? And then what do we do with it? And those are two interrelated uh, questions. And the first question is a, is a theological question. What is the Bible? What, what is it actually doing? And then the other one's a hermeneutical. It's an interpretive question. What do we do with it? And those two things are always in conversation with each other. And, and if you want to be part of a Christian conversation, you're going to be involved in both of those things, whether you know it or not. The ontology of the Bible is a stupid word, but, it, you know, what is it? And okay, that tells me nothing about how I should read it and what I should do with it. And that puts you on an adventure that literally never ends. For those people who haven't read something like, what is the Bible, what do we do with it? What do you say the Bible is? Oh, I hate that question, because that's part <laughs> of what I do is I'm always trying to like think through and refine what I think the Bible is. But I think um, what I've become more direct in thinking over the years. And this is not the final word. I, I just don't deal that way. But at the moment, and maybe for the past few years, I really am appreciating the Bible from the bottom up and not from the top down. And I think of the Bible as a almost like a diary <laughs> on the part of people of faith who are processing that faith authentically and genuinely with a real God. And, and that's why you see these differences of opinion in the Bible and things don't always fit together. It's this anthology of, of, of deeply spiritual, reflective writings that uh, are still being read. I mean, think about that for a second. <laughs> you know, I mean, most holy books are not read after 2,500 years when they got started, right? So, so I mean, that's it. I mean, I know I'm leaving a lot of stuff out. Like, people always ask, what about revelation? What about inspiration? What about authority? And I think I, I understand what you're saying, but I can talk about all that stuff. It just doesn't put the wind in the sails for me the way this very human book that the Spirit is pleased to have used in the lives of people as they debate it, as they disagree over it, and things like that. And I just sort of, I'm, I'm really happy just to leave it at that and not feel like I have to go a step further and explain it in some way, especially just to make other people happy. I just, I don't need to do that at this point in my life. And when it comes to your expertise and, and, and some of the specific focus that you have, I mean, you've written plenty of books on specifically the Old Testament when it comes to the Bible, which is interesting to me because it makes up most of the Bible, and yet also paradoxically is sort of the most overlooked by mainstream society for a, a couple reasons that, uh, you know, Number one, kind of being um, uh, mainstream kind of evangelical Christians, kind of like, well, the New Testament is the important stuff, so let's focus on that. And then skeptics will kind of look at the Old Testament as sort of, 
or hold up it up as a lot of examples of, well, here's why I don't believe in God, because it's the angry, vengeful person or person-like entity who um, is cool with raping and pillaging and murdering and genocide. So what was it that you were like, hey, this thing, I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and this is the thing I really want to delve into? Almost precisely for that reason, because say one of my seminary professors, Ray Dillard, I'll just mention his name because he was a beautiful person and he he died in 19. He was 49. He died of a heart attack and mm-hmm. it was sort of tragic. But I, I was finishing up graduate school. But um, he would tell the class he would hold up a Bible and I'm holding a Bible up now. Like he would hold up a Bible and he would do this. Here's your Bible. This is the Old Testament. <laughs> this is the new. You better figure out what to do with it. And I'm like, well, dang, yeah, I guess I'd better figure out what to do with it, because it's, it is the Bible of the early church, you know, certainly of Jesus and Paul until, you know, the New Testament was canonized, but we're talking the fourth century at this point. So it was, it was the official scripture, and they keep talking about it. Right now, I think what they do with it's very interesting and creative, but they still keep talking about it. So, and I and I really sort of thinking to myself, how I mean, I, I would put it this way now. I'm not sure I put it this way when I was in seminary, but how does the gospel have a conversation with this ancient Old Testament text in today's world? I mean, it's a different kind of conversation in the first century in Palestine when things are sort of fresh and you're at least in that same part of the world. But what do you do if you're in Alaska, right, or something like that, or Brooklyn, or whatever? You know, it's just, it's it's not, the world has changed. And the problem of, and I say problem in a positive sense, not like a skeptical sense, but the problem of, let's say, adapting the Bible to address where people actually are is as old as the New Testament itself, because I see the New Testament writers doing that all the time. They're adapting this ancient story to take into account or to be in conversation with Christ. And every stage in the history of the church has been people doing that from their own point of view. And, you know, ancient church creeds are there because what started out as a Semitic and really apocalyptic faith, uh, it didn't end as quickly as people thought it might. And so (laughs) you have Gentiles catching on, and then you have Greco-Roman philosophical stuff going on, and so you have creeds that say things like God— God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten of the Father, not made, being a one substance with the Father, which I think Paul wouldn't have known what to do with. But in <laughs> philosophical language, that's the language people are speaking. So they're they're adapting that and, and bringing it into conversation with their reality. And I think everyone has done that, and we and it's not wrong. You have to do that somehow. Yeah, I absolutely love that. It's a freeing, freeing thing uh, to think about. And I'm just curious, I mean— you know, you bring up Paul, and we see that in the New Testament, we see Paul looks at Old Testament law and reinterprets it based on what he's seeing happen at the time. He says, mm-hmm. um, he says, well, you know, it, it, we should include Gentiles using Scripture that, in my mind, excludes Gentiles. You know, so kind of reinterpreting um, and, and being more inclusive in that respect. Do you feel like right now, in this time and place, we, I guess, have that same like spirit-led responsibility? Um, to be a part of this imagining and reimagining of God at work in our lives now? And if so, what do you think that looks like for us? And when I say us, I'm talking about American Christianity. Yeah. Um, well, I do think we have the responsibility to do that. But the question is, what do you do? Right. And that 
that's the theology question and the interpretation question. And I, I don't, I can't like print out a pamphlet, like here, here's how you do it today. Right. <laughs> I think that does vary from time to time and place to place. And, um, you know, for me, almost like the entry point to this, and I talk about this and how the Bible actually works, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, you know, those two Proverbs right next to each other, don't answer a fool according to his folly, you'll be lucky yourself, answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. They contradict, they're right next to each other, because the choice is always before us, how will we reflect, and I'll put this in New Testament language, how can we reflect the kingdom of God here, right now? There's no script. What you have is trajectories and and um, uh, formative kinds of stories and claims in the Bible that we have to. We don't have a choice. We're always doing it anyway. It might as well know what we're doing. We have to ask ourselves, okay, what do I do? What is God like right here and right now? Mm. And that is something that, I mean, you, you have to believe in the Spirit of God to be involved in a discussion like that, not just exegesis of verses in the Bible. So what I'm wondering what a what in, as a theologian, um, what infuriates you more? Is it someone who is uh, who uses the uh, an out of context quote from the New Testament to justify what they're trying to say, or an out of text Old Testament quote? It just depends on what they're saying with it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Paul takes things out of context, you know, like you said, and and it doesn't infuriate me in the slightest. It just is, it makes me curious. But I think, you know, the difference between, say, a Paul or a New Testament writer creatively using the Old Testament, it's always done in service to the gospel. The gospel is primary. The Bible goes along for the ride in some creative way. You know, what TV preachers might do or people that infuriate me, what they might do, it's not about furthering the kingdom, it might be about furthering their kingdom, or it might be about putting people down, or it might be about how not to love other people. You know, Augustine said famously, you know, if what you're doing with the Bible doesn't promote love, you're doing it wrong. You know, and I think that's that's a good way to live. It's it's I mean, I'd rather make mistakes on that side than on another side, right? So um, yeah, I think it's it's a big um Here's what I wouldn't say. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that, for example, you're using the text wrong. Why do you say that, Pete? Well, because this is what the author originally meant. I think that can act as a sh- as a shield and as a like a regulator for crazy people, you know, um, but that at the end of the day isn't the final word about using scripture. And my proof text for that is, frankly, the entire New Testament, parts of the Old Testament, and the entire history of the church. We don't use texts the way they were originally intended, because in part, we don't even know what that intention was most of the time. But it almost doesn't matter, because the um, I think the real push, in my opinion, is the Spirit leading the Church on, and the Bible becomes sort of a means of grace, of connecting with God in a very concrete way, that we then use in service of something that we know is right, even if it's just intuitively. That that intuitive word is such a scary word for people. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, I I think uh, maybe just helping people who who don't have uh, have some of the the, the Bible knowledge uh, that you have and Jim has over there. Um, what what is the 
What's the thing that makes that so scary? Why has Christianity become something uh, that, sto- uh, that stops us from using our imagination or, or our a divine imagination, for that matter, uh, and, and focusing so much on just the, the, the word, the, you know, only? Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine there are probably multiple explanations for that, so I don't want to suggest this is the only one, but, you know, a lot came out of the Protestant Reformation where the Bible properly understood is your rule of faith. Hi, cat. Pain in the butt. Um, are, is your church watching this, by the way? Because I could just show them marmalade. No, they don't care. They're fine. Anyway, they're better off. Marmalade, you're not getting camera time. Beat it. Okay. Anyway, um, I think a lot happened in the Reformation to elevate the Bible to a role that it probably quite hadn't recognized beforehand. And a lot of that has to do with, like, in the 16th century and 15th century, and even before that, um, there was a push to um, to revisit the sources of the faith. In other words, people were learning Greek and learning Hebrew and going back to the originals. And you also have the rise of science, of, of strict methodologies and things. All that stuff's coming together, plus political stuff. And all of a sudden, the Bible comes out of that as like, this is the supreme authority, and the Bible's clear. It's clear enough in things it needs you to know. And so that's how the Protestants broke from the Roman Catholic Church, and then before you know it, you've got all these different Protestant denominations because they can't agree on what the Bible plainly says, right? But part of, see, part of having a Bible that is almost, and this sounds derogatory, and I don't mean it that way, but um, it might help, you know, the Bible becomes sort of a paper pope. The thing is, this is the one that that you have to understand, and it's clear enough, and if you don't get it, your teachers will un- may help you understand it. But this Bible is your standard. Um, but that, I mean, that hasn't worked, as I said, in the history of the Church very well. And for a Bible to have that kind of authority, the meaning has to be be derived somehow that is, let's say, analytical or and logical and academic, quite frankly. There's no room for imagination and that kind of an approach to Scripture. Right. Even though the previous thousand years or so in the history of the Church very much recognized the flexibility of the text. And so the literal meaning was only one of four possible meanings for the text itself. I mean, you could have like an allegorical meaning, they called it, which oftentimes had nothing really to do with the text at all. It just sounded like a really good thing to say. Other times it had to do with preaching Jesus. It was a Christological kind of reading. But there's also the moral meaning, what it means to me as a person. How do I live my life? And then another meaning that was very future-oriented, like where's all this going and how do I participate in this big Christian drama to the point of my death, right? And I think that's that's beautiful. There's four different ways of looking at the Bible and and um, not all texts can handle all four, but you're looking for layers of meaning. And those meanings all involve some level of imagination. Now, the real problem, not to go on and on like this, but you really you got me going here on something. But the thing is that even the literal meaning, there's an imaginative element to it, because we frankly have no idea what ancient authors were thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So you're always involved in some sort of an imagination of putting yourself in the place of that person in the parable or putting yourself in the place of a Job or, or you know, a Jonah or whoever it is. And that is deliberately a creative, imaginative exercise, which is part of what makes us human. 
Like there aren't other creatures, I think, that have imaginations. Right? I, I mean, I, I absolutely Rick. love that. Yeah, mm. absolutely love that. I, I think all the time, I think all the time about Peter and a sheet falling from heaven. And <laughs> I think about, I think about what must have been going on at that point. And mm. people are like, well, that's in the Bible. And I'm like, that's, that's the oddest thing in the world. And it's yeah. so subjective. Right. And yet all of our Bible is the oddest thing in the world. And so subjective. So, <laughs> right. so right. you know, what, what do we do with that? And, and I think the next question is, um, uh, oh, you know, maybe it's just a comment. But we're afraid to use our imaginations in it. I, I think that's... Well, we've been taught our whole lives, you're, you're dirty. You're, you're a worm. God doesn't like you very much. You better watch your step. And you better listen to what this book tells you. And if not, well, I don't want to be around to see what happens then, right? So you're, you're discouraged from being a fully human person. And... I think, you know, the thing is that the the inevitability of using our imaginations anyway, I mean, give me anybody who claims to be objective and not subjective. I mean, this is the whole point of postmodernism. That's the fantasy. Mm-hmm. That That's a real fantasy to think that you're at some point where you can see objectively and, and you don't have a subjective bone in your body. I'm just reading the Bible, you know, and that's not true because we all read the Bible from our own human place. And um, I've been talking a lot lately, and I hope nobody's sick of hearing this if you heard it before, but Richard Rohr, I, I, I like Richard's approach to things, and he's got this tricycle analogy. I don't know if you guys use I, this. I haven't heard this one yet, no. Oh, well, basically he talks about how um, the life of faith is like a tricycle with three wheels, obviously, and the three wheels are exp- your experience, um, scripture, and tradition. And he says experience is the front wheel. It's it's one that drives it. You don't read the Bible apart from who you are, your humanity, your place and time, your experiences, and you don't um and, and the tradition is a part of that too, like where you were born, when you were born, what kind of Christian you are, you know, what, what you've been influenced by. And I find that to be so utterly commonsensically true that, you know, I defy anyone to say, Well, I'm not allowing my experience to uh, you know, in, in, involve me in how I interpret this text. And I just ask them, what language do they speak and where do they grow up and and how do they see the world? And your experience is very much determining even the questions you ask. You know, when I, uh, briefly, when I taught seminary, I was teaching something on, um, something with the Abraham story, I forgot what it was, but afterwards, some students came up to me and some from, um, one or more African countries and some from South Korea. There, there are a lot of students from South Korea at my seminary. And they asked me, this is really good. What does this, how does this help us understand a response to ancestor worship? Hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like 35, right? Like I know everything. I'm thinking, <laughs> that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. But I didn't say that. I said, oh, that's a good question. I sort of jumped around a little bit. And I said, that's, don't they just do, can't they just do the Bible straight? Why do they have to bring these questions into it? <laughs> It took me years to realize how really blinded I was to how my own, let's say my own largely white dominated Western academic mindset determined already for me what questions were valid and which questions were invalid. And that was a real eye opener for me to see that. And, you know, that's since postmodernism is correct in that critique of the modern mindset thinking that it controls everything and everybody else just sort of like gets it wrong. 
Yeah, no, that's that's an incredibly important thing you just said. And I think even at our church, it's one of the things that we are, are talking about. Uh, how do we continue to uh, if we're going to if we're going to uh, use our experience and we're going to talk about the way scripture still moves within us. And it's, it's uh, looking back at other experiences. How much has our experience with scripture been shaped by by only Western theology? Right. And, and what what do we need to do to, uh, you know, to to tap into the imaginations of, of literally millions of other thoughts and, and millions of other peoples and ethnicities um, as it relates yeah. to our scripture? Well, I mean, the Internet helps, right? So, <laughs> yeah, this is so, true. And, and reading helps. I mean, not everybody likes to read, but um, you can watch videos on the Internet. I mean, that sounds silly. That almost like that, that's the answer for everything nowadays. Just go and Google it. But. Um, it's true. I think the world has gotten very small and people realize that the Western perspective does not dominate the world and uh, we can't afford to be sheltered anymore. So I think it's just a matter of being gently woken up from our slumber and just experiencing things. I mean, living in a city, it's hard to avoid, (laughs) you know, diverse peoples who just look different and dress differently. And you know that you're a Christian because of where you were born, potentially, and they're not. Right. And right. you could have been born there, and you wouldn't be like that. You wouldn't be like you are now. And that that's you know that that should make us a little curious, and also, you know, that humility we always need more and more of, just to see. Listen, I I don't know everything. I'm one person in this big world, and um, I need to respect other people's humanity. But that's scary. Because they're supposed to be the wrong people who need you to change them. It, right? it, ruins our, it ruins our mission. And Jim, I know you have a lot of questions about the certainty. It ruins the marketing <laughs> strategy. That's what it does. It ruins the right. marketing strategy. You know? Right. I mean, the, the whole time I'm sitting here listening to this thinking like, wow, I, I hope the friend that I have who basically who basically kind of subtly said that my faith journey was was somewhat invalid because of my embracing of postmodernism is listening to this because... Uh, that's, uh, that's, this is not what he would want to hear, but, um, I, I yeah, I, I do have a couple questions, uh, cause we're, we're kind of basically talking about this idea of, of the Bible becoming a standard and the Bible becoming a certainty and, and kind of this narrative or this truth becoming what, you know, everyone has to adhere to and bow down to. But as Jonathan said, one of the, the great things about Forefront is how we sort of, um, you know, we tell people we we're not concerned with giving the right answers. We're concerned with asking the right questions and kind of deconstructing and, and, and kind of breaking down and kind of getting rid of this idea of, of certainty. And you have a book, uh, The Sin of Certainty, and you talk about these, <laughs> these uh-oh moments. I mean, he st- uh, Pete starts out the book with a, a, a seemingly minor moment in which he had an uh-oh moment just watching the bridge to Terabithia on an airplane and how um, his exposure to that kind of got him thinking, like, have I been thinking about things wrong? And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about sort of a, a, a seismic uh-oh moment for you, and if you're comfortable about it, kind of talking about that in context with what sort of happened in uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. Yeah, I mean, th- those those are related. They're overlapping issues, but not completely overlapping. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I, had, I had a bunch of uh-oh moments during my time at Westminster, but 
if anybody who's been in environments like that, they, they'll know, they'll understand what I'm about to say. I subconsciously suppressed all of them. I didn't intentionally suppress anything because I was trying to be duplicitous. I just wouldn't let my brain go in certain places. And it wasn't until after I left that I frankly, you know, as the philosophers say, I woke up from my dogmatic slumber and I just realized, my goodness gracious, what have I allowed to have happened to me all that time, you know? But, I mean, I remember, for example, you know, when I was there, during my time there, um, another plane incident where I was sitting next to a woman who, I'm in my maybe early 40s, and she's clearly in her, like, mid-late mid 60s, and we talked about what we do. I told her I teach in a seminary, and she said, oh, so you studied other religions. I said, lady, I just told you I teach in a seminary. What are you, <laughs> what are you deaf? You know? But she, it turns out she was a professor of world religions, and she was shocked and horrified, and gently so, not mockingly, but like, how can you know your own religion when you don't know any others? And how do you even talk to people, you know? Well, that never came across my mind, because in the tradition that I was a part of, literally, we hold the truth and trust for everyone else until they come around to see it. Literally, that's in writing. We hold the truth and trust for other Christian denominations let alone the world religions, right? So that's never a part of me, but that woke me up a little bit saying, like, oh gosh, I mean, if I'm really going to do this Jesus thing, I have to be able to look at the world the way it is and accept it and not feel like I have to give an answer to it, a quick answer to make sure that I'm, I'm still certain about what I believe in. You know, it's, it's a risk to be a person of faith out there interacting with a bunch of other people, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, a bunch of others. I mean, I um, I don't know. You mentioned the the other plane, one, the bridge to Terabithia. Uh, I think. Um, oh yeah. Um, this was almost the beginning of the end for me. I read Brian McLaren's A New Kind of Christian. Yes. And I, you know, but this is dialogue between this guy who's like, not really sure if he believes the stuff he was always told he had to believe, and he has a conversation with a man from a totally different culture trying showing him basically how goofy his thinking was and i completely identified with this guy I said this is my life and i was getting like sort of excited and frightened all at the same time like i felt really alive you know but um also like i am going to step into territory i don't even know what's around the corner I could be killed at any moment by a lion jumping out from behind a bush or something. You know, that's what I thought. But um, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, what happened at Westminster, it is a complicated story because, you know, each tradition has its own history and, and stuff like that. But I'd say the long and short of it was the seminary. I was hired to be a left wing voice in a left center right trialogue in that tradition. And I think I did that pretty well. But during my time there, the culture of the seminary shifted. And while it was shifting, I was publishing uh, my book, Inspiration and Incarnation, which was uh, used really, I think that's not an inaccurate way of putting it, it was used as sort of fuel to um, generate what came to be called the ends controversy, which I never called it that, but others... <laughs> <laughs> Loved calling it that. So, um, and it was really more of a clash. And see, this is, I don't mind saying this because I think churches go through the same thing and other institutions. It was really a clash between who gets to write the narrative 
of the institution. And um, my side, which made up about two thirds, which was made up of about two thirds of the faculty, we wrote a long paper explaining how the way I was looking at the Bible, even if it's pushing some frontiers, is very much in connection with the tradition that goes back to Calvin. And that's true. I don't think that's duplicitous. It's absolutely true. When you have people like B.B. Warfield from the 19th century at Princeton and Charles Hodge talking about how, yeah, the Bible has errors in it because people are writing it, you know, and, and they're not they're not inerrantists in the modern and in, in today's sense of the word. There is a tradition there, but um, Westminster was founded to sort of circle the wagons in the 1920s. And that's a powerful DNA. And that DNA eventually um, gained supremacy over, you know, the more progressive, let's call it, DNA. And but that was it. You know, it was really and, and every institution has the right to define itself. You know, I mean, and they do. They 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 do. And that's fine. They de they decided to define themselves in a certain way that um, I could see pretty clearly was never going to work for me. So I resigned. And that's and I literally haven't regretted that decision and uh it was a tough last few years but it was i learned a lot about myself too and and what i want to do and what i want to talk about so you know it was it was a it was a a long horrible god moment in a sense you know <laughs> not an oh shucks a god moment that's wonderful <laughs> it was more like oh no again you're here again aren't you why don't you just go away and leave me alone for a while you know so and it's it's great that you that you write about that stuff and that you're so open about it because I you know I think every single person who who steps into the front doors of our church has had at least one of those moments and I don't have and this isn't a question so much as a comment that I I love that in uh, the sin of certainty you dedicate a chapter to the book of Job because it's one of my favorite books and it's been one of my favorite books ever since one of my uh oh moments which was reading a book called. Uh, God, a biography by Jack Miles. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Which, uh, if if listeners are not familiar with it, is basically it it takes all the kind of theology and history uh, away from the Bible and kind of refocuses it or or kind of changes the perspective of what if what if the Bible was just a story and God was the protagonist and the Book of Job is the moment in the story where God's kind of like, ooh, I screwed up. I got to step back for a little bit. So <laughs> right. I, I love I love the conclusion that you've come to because I know growing up in the in my evangelical community, and Jonathan, I'm sure you can relate to this, and Pete, you can as well, and listeners can, the lessons I was always taught about why the Book of Job exists was two, of, were two lessons you were supposed to get. One, don't ever question God, which seems really unfair. Or two, trust in your own righteousness, which seems really self-aggrandizing. Yeah, don't ever doubt God. So what's Job doing in the whole thing? <laughs> and and plus, he's vindicated at the end, which I think is a beautiful thing. You know, he's he's the one who, you know, when God tells the friends, um, you have not spoken rightly of me as my servant Job has, as my friend Job has. And Job, it's almost like his his his. Um, arguing with God and refusal to give in to cheap theology is then vindicated at the end. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, that's, that's part that I haven't really thought of. I, I haven't thought of that piece. And, it, you know, it's interesting because I think when we're confronted, all of us are confronted with, with, oh, this isn't a certain thing any longer. And by this, I mean, all of this Christianity, the, the all the ideas surrounding it, uh, 
what we want to do is, is we want to go backwards and double down on cheap theology. Sure. You know, we, we do that. And so it's about like, nope, it's, it's the people who are willing to take those, you know, really, really scary, ridiculous steps that are going to cost us a lot. Those are the ones that sort of come out with peace on the other side. Uh, and so I guess, you know, my thought is, you know, how, how have you come out with peace on the other side of this? Is this journey the peace that comes from it? Um, your biblical journey, your theological journey? Yeah, I mean, I'm still working on it, but I'm definitely in a more peaceful place than I was maybe 20 years ago. And I think part of it is the realization that it's okay not to be certain. Mm. Because, I mean, what's our other option? You know, like, I'm going to be certain of the universe really is what we're talking about. I, I know how God works. And what really, as, you know, as a biblical scholar, that's what drives me toward critiquing that point of view is exactly just reading the Bible, because you have different <laughs> biblical authors who think about God differently. You know, I mean, and, and Job's a great example where um, the, the, the non-transactional God is the winner. The, you know, um, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. In fact, for multiple generations, that's, that's a good part of the Bible talks like that. But other parts are like, you got to be kidding me. That's not even fair. What kind of a God is this? <laughs> you know, and so they start writing differently about God, and there are all sorts of examples of that. And to me, that's not the problem we have to have apologetics to correct. That's the character of the Bible, and that is in itself a beautiful thing. I don't like it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, because we've—and this is nobody's fault necessarily, but we're raised inside of systems which don't ask certain— Systems are tend not to be self-critical. They're critical of the outside. They're not critical of themselves. Right. And um, which is a shame. You know, Richard Rohr, again, if I can invoke his blessed name, but he, uh, <laughs> uh, I heard him say once that a religious person looks outward and says, what's wrong with them? A spiritual person takes those experiences and turns them inside and says, what can I learn? And when I heard that, I said, oh, man, I've been doing it wrong my whole life. Absolutely. This, this is about us changing. This is the Sermon on the Mount, in a sense. of You have to change from the inside out. It's not an outward appearance thing. It's a deep motivation of what makes a human. That's what God is interested in. And if, if you're part of a system that is, it sees itself as the gatekeeper for everyone else, and it's there to make sure that questions don't get asked. Well, that has to be deconstructed, you know. Yeah, can I just just this is on my mind because I'm um, with the Bible for normal people. We have a book club that meets once a month, mm -hmm. and we're in the middle of reading uh, a book by John Caputo, who's a philosopher. But this is a very popular book, and it's called "What Would Jesus Deconstruct." Mm. And it's it's a great little book. And he says deconstruction is not like an attack from the outside to hurt the gospel. It's the inner impulse of the kingdom of God wanting to surface and smash through the structures that we've built. Absolutely. It's actually, it's an internal critique. It's not an external critique. So people who have questions, they may, without even knowing it themselves, they may have a finger on the pulse of a deep thing that's being missed. Because the church, as Caputo says, the church is plan B. What does that mean? Well, 
the early church, they weren't like no one. Jesus didn't come and Paul never set up. Hey guys, we're going to be here for a while. So let's get the structures in place. No, they, they really thought, and I think this is a good thing, not a bad thing. They really thought that the kingdom of God was going to be finalized in a very short period of time yes. within yes. This, in their lifetime. And then it didn't happen. So people were like, oh crap, whatever the Hebrew word is for that, but or, or the Greek word, they're like, oh crap, we're going to, it looks like what we thought was going to happen isn't. So now it's, they have to settle down. Well, that's plan B. That's the church. Mm-hmm. And when Caputo says, what would Jesus deconstruct? It would be the church that he would deconstruct oh. for, for, for getting the kingdom of God and, 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 and not, not destroy the church, but he would deconstruct it because plan A is the kingdom of God. Plan B is the church. The church is the placeholder while the kingdom of God actually happens. And I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about the life of faith, the life of the church. Our systems mean nothing at the end of the day, but they're, they're tools to be used. And different systems work differently for different people. But heaven help us if we have systems that think they're the kingdom of God. I absolutely love not. that. <laughs> Read Caputo. I got that from him. And I'm like, dude, he's smart. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that. But I think I think it goes back to what you said previously. The sense in which um, the sense in which we can't trust our internal systems. You know, we're hey, we're totally depraved. You know, we're we're right. we're sinners, and so we can't we can't trust um, we can't trust ourselves. So what we have to do is we have to create the Plan B system that right. gives us some parameters, it gives us some rules, gives us some ways in which we can now trust who we are. Right, and right. I lo- I love this concept of going backward and just saying no. If I'm made in the image of God, being made in the image of God means that I I, I can trust my experience, the way that I'm right. feeling, and um and so the place to start in deconstruction is an acceptance of self. That's that's kind of what I hear you saying, which is yeah, right. um I don't know. There's something really freeing about that. There's something that's really good news about that. And also, I mean, not not to get preachy theological, but you know, to use New Testament language, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, which for Paul is not. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. He he means, when Paul says, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, he means, since the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Mm. So you're a part of this mystical union with Christ and God, and guess what? You're going to make mistakes. We're human beings, but this is where wisdom comes in, and learning things as time goes on, and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But there's no brochure. There, there's no... There's no index in the back of the Bible to say, here's the verse that's going to handle this specific situation. As a friend of mine, uh, put a dear friend of mine, I was a colleague with him um, at Westminster. He said the Christian life is learning to wing it in the spirit. Mm. That's almost like charismatic or something or whatever, but I don't care. Whatever it is, it, it makes sense to me. You know, it's like we, we actually don't know beforehand what to do in every situation. But we're trying, and as we're trying to do that, as we try to reflect more the Spirit of Christ, the kingdom of God will be among us more and more. And whatever that looks like, whatever the consummation of all that is, I have no earthly idea. I know what the New Testament writers thought, but they they may have had, and this is a dangerous thing to say in some circles, but they may have had a limited understanding of what the fullness of the kingdom of God looks like. Oh, I, I think they were absolutely winging it too. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah it, that that's what it seems like anyway. Um, right. And so yeah, I would I would echo that and say they probably didn't have the fullness of understanding of the kingdom of God. 
Well, and neither we do we. And neither no, do no, we, obviously. No. Yeah. Well, it, it goes back to you wrote this, I believe, in how the Bible actually works. You say it's just this constant imagining and reimagining God uh, in our place and time, in our culture and context. And so the fact that we're doing this now, in fact, this is a question that I have, right? We're reimagining God in our culture and context now. What are they going to say about us in 500 years? If we're writing scripture, what do they say about this time and place? What, 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 are, what are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? Um, I don't know what my students are going to say tomorrow morning when I face them. <laughs> over like 500 years from now. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's for us to say. I bet you they're going to say, hopefully they'll be sensitive to context. Right. The way we're not always like, you know, people bashing the Reformation. I don't know. I, what would I do when I was there? I mean, I don't agree with stuff that happened there, but I'm not going to like look down on it and say they were idiots. But for their time, they were enacting things as best as they could, given their human limitations. And I hope people look back on all of us and say the same thing, you know. But, you know, I'm I'm glad people have reimagined God in ways that promote human integrity, for example, you know, I mean, listen, I'm, I think, you know, um, earth care is a good idea. I would even go far as say, I think God wants us to take care of the earth, which means don't destroy it by pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I don't find that in the Bible anywhere. And people try to find it in Genesis one failure. No, it's, it's, it, there's nothing in there. It's like, it's not this, it's not even a remote implication of anything the Bible says. It's, it's something that we are confronted with because we're living in an age of technology, right? And so we have to come to conclusions. You know, I don't think, I don't believe that God is ever in favor of one human being enslaving another for any reason whatsoever, but the Bible never says that. You know, we're see. This is the thing I learned this from um, talking to some people about um, the issue of slavery in the 19th century. There were two models of how you use scripture. There was the look at the text model, and there was the trajectory model. Mm -hmm. The trajectory model was the northern model. The proof text was the southern model. If you want to justify slavery on the basis of proof text, it'll take you about five minutes. Right. But the North said, "Yeah, but <laughs> Northern Christians said." There are trajectories of love and, and and equality in Scripture that we have to take. And I'm very much a trajectory person when it comes to the Bible, and there's ample precedent for it in the history of humanity. You know, and I, and that is and that is part of reimagining what God is like. And yet, with that, there is still a, a significant portion of, of of the population, the mainstream evangelical church, which is is taking that textual approach. To kind of reinforce this idea of of certainty or standards or, or that sort of thing, and, I, and I'm and I want to get some insight from you in your time as a, a theologian, as a teacher, as someone who even just puts surveys out on your blog. Um, <laughs> when it comes to people uh, within a community who are kind of, I think it's safe to say or to use the term victims of certainty. This system that sort of perpetuates itself, do you see it more kind of stemming from forces or authorities that kind of want to assert their own power and justify their own existence as like an external thing? Or do you see it as more of an internal thing where people, they just want meaning to their life, they want to keep their head above water? Or is this sort of like six of one, half a dozen of the other kind of situation? 
I was going to say, I mean, I, I don't know if we need to separate those two necessarily because I think they work hand in hand when you're when you're taught by people who um, are in charge of systems. There's always a power dimension there. And I think it's I'm glad I've been scared, uh, spared being a pastor because I'm not sure what I would do, you know, in, in certain situations. But um, I like people to agree with me and to think about things the way I do. I mean, who doesn't? Right. So. I think you're going to have this inescapable power dynamic in churches, but um, I, I think the other element there is is the fear that's involved in what people are told are the consequences if they don't listen. And when when pastors present themselves not as someone who's also on a journey working through things, but through whom God speaks— and the Bible is clear. I'll give you three scriptures to show you that I'm right. And you can't question those things. You know, that is that is a problem. And I think that sort of perpetuates a cycle of, of fear and domination and then suppression of people's emotions and lives and doubts. And, and it's not a good thing. And not every, you know— I mean, we have to distinguish between evangelicalism and fundamentalism. The news doesn't do that very well, but they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they have analogous problems. They have similar problems. And one of it, one of them is the abject fear of getting the Bible wrong in its fundamentals, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, especially the most basic. The reason I talked about what is God-like in, in the book, How the Bible Tells, uh, How the Bible Actually Works, is because that's the question. That's what it all comes down to. People people are afraid of letting go of the Bible because the Bible is their access to know the mind of God. And that's that's all this is about. You know, when when um when we were going through this stuff at Westminster and we were literally sort of talking about me in faculty meetings for a couple of years. And and um I remember like after one meeting early on, my some of my colleagues and I, we left the meeting and we thought to ourselves, these people have a very different view of our tradition than we do. That's like seems incompatible. And then after a few months, we came out saying they have a different Bible than we do. Mm, wow. But then at the end, one of my colleagues said they have a different God than we do. I'm like, that's it. You nailed it. That's exactly what this is about. It's what is God like? What is your God like? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you highlight certain passages in the Bible, which everyone has to do, if they go to the Bible, you're always selective. You can't be comprehensive because the stuff contradicts each other. It just, you can't do it unless you try to make the contradiction sort of work, but they don't. And, and it, it always comes down to what is God like. And when you're presented with a view of what God is like in churches that you can even find verses for, and you're taught never to question God, I mean, what's... What are your options at that point? Become an atheist or really a, a person who's not in touch with themselves going through life? Person I wouldn't doesn't say, know his or her own soul. I mean, it, it's it's a, it, these are serious implications here, you know. And and I think what we can do to sort of free people from that, while also recognizing you're part of a tradition. Even when you free yourself from that stuff, you you haven't left the tradition. You're just acting upon it differently than what some people told you you have to do. Don't assume they're right. And that's incredibly helpful because I think most people who who do have the questions are afraid to voice them because they think it means they're leaving they're leaving the tradition. They're they're going to be sent packing and on their way and. 
and I think that's yeah, you're you're right. It's not the case at all. It's it's uh, no, just just looking at my tradition in a different way. It's it's taking a different way home through my neighborhood than I used to. That right. kind of or thing. Jonathan, they feel like they're leaving God, and that's that's I mean, not just the tradition, but well, those things are are two sides of the same coin. You're right. The tradition delivers God for you, and and it all makes sense, and you know, and 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 the thing is that like a lot of the stuff that is said has biblical support. Mm-hmm. But so do other things have biblical support. Right. And then when you throw in, is okay, am I a proof texting kind of Bible reader or am I a trajectory kind of Bible reader? Then opens up whole different kinds of conversations. But the thing is, I mean, two things I want to say to that. One, there's always somebody out there for you. There are other Christians who already think the way you do. Your homework might be to try to find them. And also with, you know, with all the stuff that I've been saying here, I still have my moments. Like, what if I'm really wrong about this? Yes, What's yes. going to happen to me, right? And I think that's, I've, I've learned to sort of um, look that in the face and say, don't do it. Don't fall back into the old trap. Unless, you know, if you feel God is fundamentally angry, then you have something to worry about. If you think God is fundamentally on your side and will stop at nothing, you know, to bring you into a knowledge of God, that changes everything. You know, and and I think it's it's the angry God syndrome that even though people will deny it, that's in the background of everything that they're selling. But there's biblical precedent for a God who's basically pissed off a lot, and and you know it's chapter six of the Bible, and God's already out of ideas, and everybody dies. <laughs> right? What do you do with that, right? Or or you know, there's a lot of you know, I mean, the golden calf incident. I was just reading that the other day for another reason, and. You know, God's ready. I'm gonna, I'm gonna burn everybody up, and Moses has to get in there and say, "Yeah, you want to think twice about that <laughs> idea." And he basically employs this honor shame dynamic to say to God, "Listen, what would the Egyptians say that you brought us out here to die in the desert? You can't do this." And God says, "You know, you're right. Right? If that's your model of God, I, I don't know. You know, I just, I, I think there's a lot more in the Bible going on than that story. But anyway." Really? It's funny, like as our church has been on this journey uh, of of you know seeing this, we, we're we're very much a uh, trajectory church, you know, and so as we as we've been talking about the trajectory, it was funny. Some of my leaders were like, "How come, how come we're seeing less people at at, at church these days?" And I was like, "Well, we stopped preaching about a really scary God, and so they, mm-hmm. they're not freaked out into coming to church as often as they used to be, kind of thing." And it's right. funny, like how that is incredibly good news to see, like our church, you know. Mm-hmm. Get a little smaller for that reason. But anyway, Jim, right. go ahead. You were going to ask a question. First, first one, just based off of what you were talking about there. How quick or hesitant are you when you have when someone comes with you a question to say, "I don't know." Oh, I love saying I don't know because <laughs> the fact is, I usually don't. Number one, I I have impressions, I have thoughts that I I'm in a certain pl- general area with my thinking, but mm. I'm very interested in modeling for people that it's okay to say that and in fact that's the beginning of growth i think to say i don't know you can say i think this is true or you can even say i have i have a, I have a lot of conviction about something being true but to say i know how god works or i know what god is up to um i i think we need to say i don't know a lot of times about that because that's not our job to know what god's doing 
our marching orders are a little bit clearer than that, I think, about, I mean, as trite as it sounds, you know, loving God, loving our neighbor, and love as we love ourselves. And that's a tall order right there. You know, that sums up the law and the prophets. I mean, what else do you got? I mean, it's it seems pretty, the teachings of Jesus, that pretty much sums up Israel's story. And Jesus is leaving out a lot of stuff like the flood <laughs> or the conquest of Canaan, you know. <laughs> Or the, or the genuine skepticism of the book of Ecclesiastes or many lament psalms. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus is saying, along with others, you know, he's not the only one who said this, only Jew, but this summarizes the heart of this faith, right? And then Jesus shows up to show us something about what God is like. And that affects who is my neighbor, right? And I'm not sure how much the New Testament treats how do we love ourselves. I wish it did more of that sort of thing. <laughs> but because I, to me, I think that's a big barrier for a lot of people. They don't even like themselves very much, let mm-hmm. alone how can you possibly love somebody else when you think you're worthless because you're not perfect or something. You know? So now, now that we've sort of uh, we've talked about and we've established this idea of how um, certainty can be handed down, can be taught, uh, that people can be indoctrinated uh, into it in a way. I, I have a, a question that I'm the one that I've been the most afraid to ask because it kind of it, it grapples with my my spiritual religious side and my my very much human side. And that is, I guess, knowing that people can kind of be once again I kind of use the term victims or products of a of a system of certainty. How should that inform how we respond to or the grace that we extend to someone who, to get political here, is sort of like fully on board with the current American political administration saying, I've got no problem with children in cages, I've got no problem with denying rights to certain things, because the text says this, and this candidate is the candidate that is um, anointed by God just like David was at one point. Well, I think... um... It's it's a hard call to know when to be prophetic and when to be pastoral, you know, in that sense. Because I do think, you know, our job is not to force people to, you know, to belittle people, for example, and force them to see our way, which is never going to work. Brian McLaren has a great answer to that. When, when he has, you know, people who say exactly what you just said about, you know, Donald Trump's Cyrus or King David or something like that, he just says, hmm. I think differently about that. <laughs> and he just leaves it at that because if they want to talk, they can. But I think the impetus has to come from them. And we have to resist the urge to, you know, correct the Internet or our families or whatever. You know, I, I think we have to be careful about that. But the situations are different. You know, for example, um, I think part of the church's job is to call out the present administration. That's different than over dinner getting into a fight with somebody because they think the sky hung the moon. I, I, to me, those are different situations. I think, um, you know, calling out the power structures is a very biblical model, I think. And from Jesus all the way back, from Paul all the way back, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I really think it's situationally determined and also, you know, even how well you know the person you're talking to, because you can have different conversations with different people. Mm-hmm. So in other words, respect their humanity, I guess, you know, and not think, not belittle them, 
for thinking a certain way. The only people Jesus belittled are leaders. <laughs> you know what I mean? People who are in positions of authority, those are the ones he went after. He, he didn't go after the people in the street who were just doing the best that they could. It, it might not be as current when this episode goes up, but uh, recently at, at Forefront we've been doing, or John, Jonathan's been doing, I guess I should give credit to him because he's watching me, um, a, a series on, on anger, basically. And, and in a weird way, it's sort of taken a, a, a yoke off my, my, my shoulders, if you will, of kind of like, okay, this anger that I'm feeling, I should not feel guilty about that because anger in itself is not inherently wrong or evil. You can be angry, I think, and there are different kinds of anger. There, are, There's a righteous anger. I just Something is so wrong, it, just, it makes you angry. But if the anger makes you want to hurt somebody in some way, that's something we have to think about. You know? Because we, we, when anger usually... We do fantasize about hurting other people, either in a verbal, you know, back and forth or with a knife in their back. Um, but so, I mean, I think I think anger is a tough emotion for most people to um, use well. You know, joy, oh, that's easy, whatever. But anger, it's like, how can you be angry in a way that doesn't rupture relationships with other people? You know, Um in a way that doesn't explode, but is very clear that, you know, uh, and I think that's an art. That's something we have to learn just through living. But bottom line, I just think we, we it's, it's not about, there's just, this is the internet, you know, it's too much about winning arguments and not really listening to other people. I mean, I'd like to know what, what, to get deep down to the person that you meant uh, you thought about before, Jim, who says, you know, I believe this and I don't care about babies in cages and whatever. I mean, I've tried to do this and it doesn't always work because people resist it. But I want to get to the point of like, what are you afraid of? Mm. And I always get, I'm not afraid of anything. Wait, I'm insulting you. So I'm afraid. I think you're really afraid because you just got angry when I said, what are you afraid of? <laughs> That's a sign that something's going on in there. Not that I'm a therapist or anything, and I'm not, not remotely, but I need several, but I don't, I'm not one myself. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's like trying to get into that and to respect their humanity enough to spend time and try to dig into why they're thinking what they're thinking. Because there may be a deep hurt in there. There may be a story back there that leads people to, to feel a certain way, you know. And I think it also goes back to the fear that you talked about. Uh, you know, we're afraid. We're afraid of getting it wrong. You know, we, 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 we uh, for lack of a better term, sacrifice kids in cages to make sure we're on the wrong side of or on the right side of God uh, right. in some of the, the platitudes and morals. I think um, yeah. I think that's that's sometimes where the fear stems. It's, it's, it's a scary situation regardless. Right, right. But, well, if you're convinced that the stuff that the left does – whether it's abortion or, you know, letting anybody into our country who wants to come in here, if, if you're convinced those are contrary to the will of God, well, there you go. I mean, that, that's, they're, they're, that's part of the story. And that's, I mean, I, and we all know people like that. I know people personally that Trump can do no wrong because what he's keeping at bay is real evil. And we'll put up with the little evils because... Just like Cyrus, the Persian king, delivered the Judahites from captivity and let them come back home. He was a pagan. God used him. So why can't he use somebody like Donald Trump? Actually, that's a good point. Until you think about it a little bit more, then you, you lay out all these things that, you know, um, anyway. But 
A good point, but it also gets you, you know, ignoring the literally thousands of other scriptures talking about loving your neighbor. But you know, that's it. <laughs> well, see, that gets us back into what is the Bible? What is its purpose? What is it right. there for? And is it there for picking verses like, yeah. like Cyrus no. or something? You know? That's a great point. That's a great point. If there is someone listening right now who is currently in their uh-oh moment, that they feel like they're, they can't keep their head above water, that they're kind of struggling, and, and no matter who they are, whether they're a pastor or a teacher, a student, a, you know, a husband, a wife, what advice can you lend to them? I, I'm not going to say what answers can you give them, because as we kind of talked about, there's this idea of, of we're trying to kind of let go of certainty, but at the same time, letting go of it can feel like drowning. So what advice can you give to someone who might be currently going through something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've learned this from other people, too, like in my moments. But um, that may be your God moment at this time. Oh, no, you don't understand. I'm, 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 I'm totally overwhelmed. Nothing makes sense. I know that. I know what you're saying. There are Psalms that say the same thing, right? It's, part, it's a normal part of the experience of people of faith that um, will ultimately be redemptive. It will ultimately move you to another place. No, you don't understand. I'm, I'm actually at the end of my rope. I feel like I'm dying. And Jesus says, you have to die to yourself to get this. You have to be like a seed that goes in the ground. You see, this is, you're actually experiencing something now that... I don't say this lightly, because I know, I know people now who are suffering in ways I never want to go near. And compared to my sufferings, it's been a very small thing, what, I, what I've gone through. So I, I, don't, I don't say this lightly, but the mystery of suffering, and not that suffering's, oh, I can't wait to suffer because it's redemptive. It's, no, suffering happens to everybody, and, and the suffering is often very personal and very psychological, where what made sense to you doesn't make sense anymore, and you feel like God has left you, and what, in fact— you know, St. John of the Cross of Teresa of Avila, the, you know, these late medieval um, mystics who talked about this stuff a lot, would say, well, that's not God leaving you, that's your dumb thinking about God that's leaving you. And that's sort of the thing that has to go, there has to be a reset button at some point. And for some people, it's more dramatic than others. And for Mother Teresa, it lasted 47 years. Right. You know, and don't think the stuff that she did had nothing to do with that process she was working through her whole life it led her to be really a self-sacrificial person you know so I, I mean that's all that is talk for somebody who's in pain but just just know that you're not the first person and others have gone this path and it's actually a normal part of faith if this doesn't happen something's really wrong with you mm. you know so but again, I, I say that cautiously because, you know, when people are in pain, that's not always the thing to hear. And I don't, I don't blame them. They, they want compassion and sympathy. Um, I'm giving more of a theological big picture look at that. But there's, um, that's, it still doesn't mean it shouldn't be said in certain circumstances. That's, yeah, that's incredible. And I, I love what you're saying because I think it gets to the fact that, like, if you can hang on, and, and if you are going to, you know, if you are being planted in, in some respect in this, then this thing is going to become really good news. This is going to become really good news mm -hmm. all over again. There's really hope in this. Um, it's just well, about can I say it... something? Just, just to augment that, John, I, I agree Please. with that. I, but I didn't say, 
it's not just you hanging on. I think it's about finding others who understand uh, that because I think you need people around that time too. And there might be nobody in your church that can, pastors especially, they can't talk to anybody. You have to find a community of people that value you for who you are and don't try to fix you, don't try to correct you, but they have a lot of wisdom and experience. They know this path already. This is why churches, if you're going to have a church, who knows what church is going to look like in 50 years, but if you're still going to have a church, it needs to be full of old people, you know, who really understand the, 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 this, the, 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 the difficulties of faith, and they've lived through that, and they can give you wisdom. That they, I think they need that, so— yeah, I, I mean that's it. Like uh, I, I think uh, that's a, that, that's actually just a word of encouragement. I appreciate that word of encouragement. I think that's what we're trying to be as a church is just a mm-hmm. church for people on this journey and needing uh, safe space and needing people who are on the journey with them in it. And if you know, thanks for that word of encouragement. I appreciate it. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And, and people who can believe for you, if need be. I guess I'll just end this by. Uh... Thanking you uh, on behalf of, of Jonathan and the Forefront community and everyone who is listening to this. This has been an honor, a privilege, and truly, I think uh, I, I can speak on behalf of Jonathan as well, um, an illuminating uh, and edifying experience. Well, thanks. And I appreciate being here, too. It's nice being a part of churches that are trying to do different things, too. That's important. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for giving us your time to, uh, you know, there's so many people at our church who are going to find this incredibly helpful and healing. Good. So, I'm glad. Yeah. That's wonderful. I want to thank Pete Enns for being a part of the Midrash NYC podcast. Thanks so much. Uh, and if you want to hear more from Pete, you can buy his latest book. It's called How the Bible Actually Works, in which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's great news. And yes, that's the entire title. You can get that at PeteEnds.com. You can also check out his podcast. It's called The Bible for Normal People. I know it's been a helpful podcast for me and so many others in our community. Uh, Definitely worth checking out. And so that's it for now. Please rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about the Midrash NYC podcast. And we will join you next time with Linda K. Klein.